Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. And I just read that off Wade's shirt. And so if you want to buy shirts, I don't know what you do. You have, must have to email us and we can... They should be searchable on Amazon now, I believe. Oh, uh, that Ben's brother, who is taking care of this for us very kindly, um, has made it. So if you do search Let the Bird Fly shirts, it should appear. All Otherwise, I believe it is pinned on the Facebook page. Uh, Mike is wearing a... Uh, Nice brown Let the Bird Fly shirt. We did not plan this to match. I have the blue. Uh, when I was recording with Peter last, he had uh, the gray, I guess. The gray, yeah. yeah they, they look pretty sharp. And we're thankful to the people at 1517 Legacy Project. They lent us their um, a design person who is... I, do you remember the name of... I can't remember the name of... I feel bad Well, now. Doug Clambara is who we did a, uh, a lot of the work with. Um, and he uh, then had others that he worked with to build it. I uh, I do think, though, that uh, Doug, most of the artwork that you see um, that has been done for 1517, Doug oversees that and really does a, a great job. Um, but the one, I think, who actually designed the logo himself was Brenton Clark Little, and uh, I think he, you know, he's on Facebook, he's online, and he just did a fantastic job, so we thank he, him and, or thank him and Doug for it with the new logo yeah so definitely check out 1517 legacy not just for the graphics but for all those podcasts we're very happy to be a part of that podcast family that network um of course uh we don't uh, necessarily uh agree with everything that they say and certainly they probably would have something to say about what we say what we're just saying is we're not responsible for each other but they are great guys and they've been very gracious to us and so check them out 1517 legacy project and uh today we're going to be talking about eschatology and we'll probably after the disclaimer, just go right into um, the biblical narrative and go from there. So, this show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. Or to our be, podcast network. Or our podcast fellowship. Uh, to be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free friends and don't let us get in the way. us to our scripture narrative, and I was going to have us look at two portions of scripture today. Um, as we will be in this episode, Mike, I, did you mention we're talking about eschatology? But I didn't explain eschatology, so maybe you want to do that right now. Um, when we talk about eschatology, it just is the last things, and it can be last things in a lot of ways. It can be the last thing in your life, so death. It can be the last thing of all time, so it could be uh, judgment day. Um, so we're going to be talking about eschatology or the end times. Uh, maybe the REM song comes to mind, it's the end of the world as we know it, uh, and kind of how uh, when we mix up the ultimate and the penultimate, that which is the ultimate, the last thing, and that which really isn't, um, we can maybe uh, suck some of the joy out of life and, and the meaning and the purpose that otherwise we, we should be able to enjoy um, and, uh, and have enrich 
our days. And so the, the first uh, parable I want to just read for us is taken from Luke's gospel. Uh, I believe that's Mike's gospel. Yep. Is that correct? Chapter 12. And this is Jesus speaking. Uh, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And Jesus then goes on to talk about being anxious and what follows there um, in Luke's gospel. My uh, cursor on my computer here is not going to cooperate. We'll see. There we go. Um, but what I'd like us to do is to jump to uh, to Matthew's gospel, um, simply because this is from the Sermon of the Mo- on the Mount, and so many might be familiar um, with these words from, from Matthew chapter 6. Um, th- Jesus then, speaking of being anxious, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, And just coming to mind as I read especially the second, but maybe then we can go back to the first, Mike, is if we we think of how God reminds us of our ultimate needs, um, why should we worry about being clothed when we have been clothed with the robe of his righteousness um, and holy baptism? Uh, Why should we worry about what we shall eat or drink um, when we recall that he's taken simple bread and wine and gives us his very body and blood in the supper? Um, In these things, I'm not saying that Jesus is trying to be sacramental here. I am trying to be sacramental here. Um, But when we see that Jesus takes these things that are sources of normal everyday concerns, clothing and food, and uses precisely these images and these things as means for giving us his grace, what a reminder that the other things are taken care of um, as well. We... uh, that first reading, though, with the storehouses, that just came to mind for me as we will be talking about last things or eschatological things, um, because how many aren't concerned to find the perfect system, um, to find the perfect plan to where they'll never have any worries for life again, um, whether that be a political thing, an economic thing, um, a household thing. And what a reminder that Jesus there gives. It's a wonderful thing if your field produces, right? Go work your field. He's not saying don't work your field. 
but to remember where our true blessings come from and, and where uh, our ultimate hope is. And maybe, Mike, if you want to jump in on any yeah. of that and the vocational purpose of what we're doing. Yeah, and you, you had mentioned this before that you can maybe shy away from some of these don't worry passages when, when ministering to people. Um, and I, I think the reason for that is there are a lot of times when people who are suffering, at least to me, would say, uh, Pastor, I know I'm not supposed to worry, but I do. And they take that don't worry as a law, like they're better, they're a better Christian if they don't worry and a bad Christian if they do worry. And I would say to them, well, I would be more concerned if you didn't worry. Worry, worry means that you love, that you care about the people you're going to leave behind or that you're, you're worried about this this gift of life that maybe is in danger. Worry is not the problem. Uh, the problem is that if you put your faith into something other than Jesus Christ. And so when when Jesus is saying these words, uh, we've talked about this before, that he is <clears throat> saying it to the three-year-old um, the three-year-old daughter or son who is concerned about things and uh, is saying to them, don't, don't you understand how big and powerful I am? Don't you understand that things are under control here? Don't you understand um, how much I have put into you already? And I liked your analogy there of why you worry about your clothes when you have been clothed with righteousness. And the point there is, my goodness, uh, Jesus Christ has done so much for you, lived um, taken your sin away, died on the cross, rose, ascended, sent the Spirit to you, ruling all things for your benefit. He hasn't forgot about your clothes, and he hasn't forgot about your pocketbook, and he hasn't forgot about your health. Don't worry about it. And so it's more of a, a loving father saying to a child, don't worry here. I, I'm in control here. It's not saying, oh, you're a bad person because you worry. Yeah. Right? You're taking, you're taking something that's uh, gospel and making it into a law. And that you can go ahead and then enjoy the gifts you have. I mean, the, the lilies of the field are clothed in splendor. Why? So that we can look at them and appreciate their beauty. Um, you know, I, I myself, oftentimes, I'm the kind of person, I'm, I'll look at something and then think, how long till that's ruined or done or over? You know, um, well, you you have, to, we have children, so we can yeah, understand that. You know, you go to some event that you're excited to go to and you go, okay, this is probably a two-hour concert. And then it's an hour in and you go, there's probably an hour left. Or even if you're watching a YouTube video you like and you're like, looking only five minutes of it left. Um, no, you're kind of set free to be, here's this thing, to have this thing, uh, and recognize it as gift, but then to serve as gift for others. It's okay to have a storehouse, um, you know, to have some savings. I know that's been a debate in Christian history. But also to recognize that the end goal of your service isn't that you can just say to your soul, oh, soul, be at peace, you've stored enough up. Um, but to be set free from that concern to then see your neighbor um, and serve your, your neighbor and his or her uh, need as well. And maybe just let the bird fly. Yeah. And that brings us to our free-for-all. We're going to do something really deep, and then Ziggy came in, and so we're going to do something even deeper, even more important. Ziggy came in from uh, from playing FIFA soccer or Fortnite? That would be my two guesses. FIFA. FIFA. There you, go. you still got the soccer fever from the World Cup? Not really. No. Well. All right, so what our topic uh, is going to be is going to be college mascots. What is the best college mascot? All right, Ziggy, you want to go first or you want to go last? Last. Okay. So um, I got a ton. I love, 
I love Trojans. Um, I love all the kind of goofy ones too. I think there's like the um, banana slugs or something like that. Like <laughs> one of the Santa Barbara schools. I love those cool ones that are really like really different. But actually, my favorite. I'm gonna go way out. My favorite mascot combo with their like football helmet basically but their logo is the wyoming cowboys with the cowboy who's uh they have some controversy right now have you seen that Uh -uh. about their their new logo for the college is something like be a cowboy and there's a bunch of professors who are saying that that's um sexist and uh um that limits you know appeal and so Hmm. the regents or whatever you call them trustees they're voted to uh unanimously to keep this as their new logo so it's been in the news a lot and this is this is why i say it's a serious deal because you know you have the you know the the fighting sioux and of course you have the you're wearing central michigan the chippewas you know those there's there's always controversy when it comes to to those uh, mascots but we'll try to keep it light wade what's your what's your favorite um you know, I'm, I'm a little torn on this. I kind of want to give, pr- as much as it pains me, props to Michigan for not having one. Um, you know, they've got kind of the iconic helmets, uh, and uh, they, whenever they have, like, the Big Ten mascots all together, there's just kind of, you know, the black M or something <laughs> there. Uh, I uh, I like Nittany Lions for Penn yeah. State. Uh, I'm trying to think if I were to, to go down Cri- SEC Crimson way. Tide, I think, is cool. Yeah, I, I never know, quite know sure exactly what it why, means. Why is there an elephant there? But you know, but roll tide is yeah, it? I, I mean, it cool. is a cool thing to be able to say. I'm not in favor of like tigers, wildcats, all those that every other high school is named on. You got to have to. You got to be a little bit more creative. The uh, Aggies, that's not a bad one. I think. I, I think uh, Nebraska. I like the the Cornhuskers. It's anything that's very specific to the actual place it's from. I think that's always kind of a cool one when you can have, like you said, it's not just generic, but it's something to uh, the place itself. But I was actually going to go um, and give props to an alma mater of mine, and and I think uh, I like the Chippewa as one because you might remember in the '90s there were a lot of these controversies about using Native American names with uh, the schools. And most people don't realize that Central Michigan actually has a really good relationship with the, the Chippewa um, in, uh, in the Mount Pleasant area. And um, they're actually big supporters of the uh, university. They endow a chair for Native American history. And it was decided with the university and with the, the Chippewa, no, this is a good thing to have this name. And so they did change the logo to the Flying Sea. I believe it used to be a more uh, Native American um, type uh maybe stereotypical type logo that you might see. But uh, I do think that's cool when you kind of have one where everyone rallies and says, no, this can be meaningful for uh, for everyone. I'm trying to think, uh, you know, um, I feel like I'm being Big Ten centric, but uh, I, I think I know what Ziggy might say, so I'm trying not to steal his. Uh, I would have to say probably least favorite, Buckeyes. But... Uh, that's really not because of the logo. That's just because it's Ohio State. Right. But uh, Ziggy, what do you got for us? For a mascot, I mean, not logo. Obviously, I at first thought of the Spartans, which is probably what you were saving. Yeah, I was trying to stay away from Sparty for you. But then I kind of thought of Washington, the Huskies. I don't know why, but I feel like that fits them for some reason. Yeah, that's a Northwestern type thing. And... I don't really know many of the mascots outside of, like, Big Ten SEC. I just know the colleges. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think of when they do like the NCAA commercials, who are the big ones they get out there. Tar Heels, and they have like a Ram. Yeah, that's Blue cool. Devils, I suppose, for Duke when it's. If, I, I think we were thinking largely football there early on because what would what's the um, Wichita State? They're the. Um, shockers. Yeah, shockers. Yeah, that's a pretty good one too. Um, I feel like we haven't necessarily hit on anything iconic, although I, I mean I, I think Sparty is a pretty. pretty they're they're good. One. I like Trojan Sparty. Anything brings some like Greek culture. Yeah. Into the, um, I got to make a correction. UC Santa Barbara is the Gauchos, also good, and it's Santa UC Santa Cruz, I believe, that are the Banana Slugs. Huh. Either, either either way, those are pretty cool. You see, I think uh, Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton is the Titans. Now, That's do they a have a team. banana slug that runs around, though? <laughs> you know, I don't run. <laughs> Maybe not, but <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know how that mascot would work out. The, uh, I feel like we're, we're probably missing a lot, but this would be a good one for you to go ahead and email us if you have any favorites. We can probably mention it in a future uh, free-for-all. I'm guessing Mr. Seeger has uh, yeah. has some from Wisco and that he can share. Not to go to the high school level, but there is a... a um, high school in, I believe, the Upper Peninsula, where their nick- nickname's the Nimrods, and they take it from the Bible, but I don't, you know, <laughs> it has a different connotation now, so. Ziggy, you got anything else for us, buddy? Well, when Pastor Berg started talking about the kind of different ones, I thought of, there's a minor league baseball team called the Chihuahuas. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Toledo Mud Hens. That would be a really good one. Would be would minor be league baseball to look at the different names and kind of. Is it Lansing Lug Nuts? Yep. That's a yep. pretty good one. Uh, my girls are on the Sand Nats for softball, and I think that's named after a, a minor league team. We should so. uh, know what a good free throw would be. We should take minor league baseball teams and we give the location, and then we give a choice of three names, and you have to guess which goes. With what? Uh, could, that'd yeah, be a good free throw to put together. I could put that together and have the Johnson kids and see who wins. I'd win. (laughs) All right, well, unless we have something else on that, I guess we'll make our way to the main topic and the last things. which is eschatology and as Wade alluded to uh, eschatology is the study of the end times the end things and that can be pretty broad that could include in some cases heaven hell last judgment um, uh, the return of Jesus Christ anything after the ascension and Pentecost up until well up until uh, Jesus returned and then even beyond that when we consider heaven and hell but I probably our main concern will be uh, what Wade talked about with uh, mixing up the ultimate with the penultimate and sometimes uh, even as Christians but I think all people and all philosophies and all religions will have a tendency at least some splinter group in their um, overall religion or philosophy um, will definitely have a, a mixture of the penultimate and the ultimate trying to bring utopia here on earth or trying to by human action um, 
make God come down here and end the world um, for their benefit or whatever it may be. And that's a real kind of interesting thing that really dovetails into uh, politics more than we, we think about. I When I uh, teach uh, intro to scripture, I make a big deal about you should know Jerusalem, you should know the um, the geography of this, you should know the importance of it, the fall of Jerusalem, all this, because all politics, somewhere, somehow, geopolitics anyway, has some sort of concern with this sliver of land, Jerusalem, and it has to do often with the misunderstanding of the end times. And if you're going to be a person who is knowledgeable in this world, and um, who is going to be engaged civically, uh, who's going to vote, who's going to do all of these things, you better know what, what you better know about this stuff, at least in a cursory level. And I say, you know, you, you want to be the person when on the nightly news, they say, Oh, there's a bombing in Gaza. You want to be the one who knows exactly where that is and why that's so significant for us in America and for the whole world. Um, I, I think you just, it's, it's really necessary. And again, it has much to do with eschatology. And I think, uh, as Mike hit on with the political aspect of things, one of the things that it seems in the last few uh, decades, um, and, and I mean especially in our last decade, we've seen the rise of uh, religious speech or zeal making itself its way into uh, political rhetoric, um, political campaigns, things of that nature. And it, uh, we won't get into a bunch of philosophy, but many people who don't even know much philosophy know that Plato warned about how easily democracy could fall into demagoguery. The idea of you, you get this strong leader um, who's going to appeal to kind of what the population wants, or at least the majority of the population wants, and that rule then will become about that leader, his person, um, and kind of in that way people will lose their voice by giving it to another and uh, I'm not saying by any any means that um, you know that any of current leader or anything is, is is what Plato had in mind. In fact, I think that's part of the problem as we do um, overplay that hand as well. But I think there is a lot to how we now market politics, um, the zeal that people put into it. And, uh, you know, it's been said by some, uh, socialism is a religion. Well, it could be said of others, capitalism is a religion. You know, if you think of Ayn Rand and some others, um, these things can become uh, system, systems of thought, um, worldviews that, that really a religious component is fine, but so long as it fits within it. And I think we see that even within the church today, unfortunately, um, in a large extent, um, both churches that tend to have um, clergy or members from the left or the right side of the aisle, uh, that religion just gets subsumed under this otherwise largely political or economic worldview. And then Jesus comes up where he fits or where he can help uh, with one's view in that regard. And it, it uh this has always been a problem with the two-party system where, you know, you're kind of supposed to join one party or another and then agree with an entire platform um, where you have one concerned with poverty on the one hand, perhaps, and another concerned with life on the other hand. And these two things can seem inconsistent at times um, and polarizing. And, and that's where uh, we do well to remember that, that Christ comes first and Christ is above um, our storehouses or what we will be clothed with or how we will be fed and things of this nature. And so one of the things I, I was hoping we could get at with this episode, and Mike, you kind of let off with it, is this distinction between penultimate and ultimate. 
Um, and that's really the tagline of our show, Let the Bird Fly, um, living freely in a world given back to us, is that we're now given back a world that is penultimate for us. This world that was before ultimate, where we're looking to every, we're, we're making everything into an idol. Um, we're turning gifts into gods or goddesses, and thus being unfair to the gift and also cheating ourselves um, and failing to recognize the hand of our creator. And a world given back to us, uh, we're given back a world that we can enjoy, that we can live in and serve in for the benefit of others, um, a world that is not now our measuring scale for our relationship with God, and, and a world that's not meant to deliver our ultimate happiness or meaning, but is in a, a place where we can find happiness um, and meaning um, that flows from and builds upon what we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think uh, this is something probably, Mike, you encounter with students as well. Uh, when we have students who are going through school, and, and by the time they get to college, right, the, the pressure really is on is this is probably where your education ends unless you do grad school. Now what's going to be your thing? Who are you going to be? Right? You need to figure this out. And uh, these things, especially as they get towards the end of their college career, can kind of take on an ultimate type of thing. Like, this is, this is it. I've got to figure this out. This is life. And... Uh, and I'm guessing for many people, this comes up in life, whether it's when you become a parent or, um, you know, whatever the case might be, that sometimes we can take the next stage of life or we can take a, a new role we have in life and really suck it of its joy and purpose by, um, by making it ultimate instead of penultimate. Um, any, anything you would build oh, on yeah, with that, Mike? Quite a bit. Um, you know, it's interesting you brought, brought that up that we should do a show on identity. I think that would be sometimes That's we... That's a good idea. Um, Peter, if you're listening, write that down. Yeah, please. write that down. I'm, we, we can't be troubled with writing it down Are we allowed right to tell now. Peter what to do or just Ben? Um, I think Peter, too. Okay. Oh, I meant is only Ben allowed to tell Peter what to do? I oh, didn't mean we could tell Ben case, what to yeah. do. <laughs> I don't think anybody tells Ben what <laughs> no, to do. No, um, We kind of have this notion even... Even scientifically and psychologically, we can say, listen, somebody, by the time they're three, you know how how um, tall they're going to be. By the time they're six, you can predict this. By the time they're in high school, you can predict this or whatever. And I don't know that that's always fair. First of all, we would say our identity is crisis, is is in Christ as baptized um, believers. But also, uh, there's a vocational aspect there, too. Vocation uh, defines us um, often in ways much more than just our psychology. And so um, I, I may have uh, decided that I want to be something, whatever career it may be, but circumstances led me down a different path. And out of love, I've become something else. And that's not insignificant. We shouldn't, we shouldn't downplay that. So we, we, should, we should do something on identity. I, I think that would be interesting. Um, maybe jumping back a little bit to what you said um, about uh, worldviews being, have it taking on a religious character. I think you see that in so many different ways, especially with leadership. Um, much talk about leadership. And um, if you're going to lead somebody, you're saying, follow me, basically. And the oh, easiest way to do that is out of fear, right? And um, and you can easily see um, how a, a leader... Was it Rahm Emanuel who said, never let a good crisis go to waste? Right, right. Yeah. And uh, there's... it's You can see how attractive a religious aspect would be to somebody who wants to steer up, stir up a certain kind of... Uh, a problem. Here's the solution. Follow me to that solution. But even if you think about the environmental movement, 
Um, the character that it has taken on recently is very religious. Um, it is apocalyptic. If we don't do this, this will happen, and it's the end of the world as we know it. Quite, films made showing this, yeah. Quite, I mean, quite I, I think sometimes you could put it, one of those films up against like a Left Behind with Kirk Cameron yeah. and say, like, which one's Christian, which one's environmental? <laughs> yeah. And you might, if you didn't have sound, if you just had the scenery, you might really you might have a hard time picking. Um, and uh, an apocalyptic kind of thing. Not only that... But Mike is currently um, dumping motor oil in my backyard on the grass, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I, I, we mentioned this before that um, uh, one of my assignments in my apologetics classes make the case that only Christians can be a true environmentalist by not elevating um, uh, the, the earth to God, making it ultimate instead of penultimate, something to be enjoyed, but something that... Um, is to be uh, revered and and fearful of, instead of something from a Christian point of view, which is a stewardship model. This is a gift and stuff like that. And it's it's an interesting kind of essay question. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer there. But back to the environmentalism. Not only is there apocalyptic type thing, there is a dogma that you don't mean you don't go against it. Right? There's internal debates, but there are certain dogmas that you do not. You do not go against, but also... And it's really easy, right, to tell when something's taken on religious connotations, especially for that reason. If there's a dogma or doctrine that you can't question, or if questioning it does send someone into fits, um, this is this has now become religious for someone. Right. And then you even have an evangelism-type uh, mindset there. We have to win over converts to this, to this cause. And so you can see that in just about every philosophy, every kind of movement, every kind of system of thought, uh, taking on that religious uh, character. And the way to do that then is to mix up the... the ultimate, as you said, with the penultimate in a very easy way, and then uh, use a fear factor, um, and uh, then add dogma, and then this uh, evangelism tactic to win over uh, win over converts. Um, the other thing that I was going to add about uh, what you said, and I can't remember exactly right now, but um, uh, the idea of... Um, a person, let, let me put it this way. Uh, I had preached at my local parish, St. Philip's, um, here in Milwaukee. And we were talking about predestination, but I, I made the point that said, I don't know how the revolutionaries and the reformers of the past and the history of the world, whatever their cause may be, righteous or not, if they didn't have this distinct separation between ultimate and penultimate, although I didn't use your terms there, uh, didn't have the peace of heaven, basically how they got up in the morning and went to work. How did they deal and cope with those nagging questions? Will it ever be? Will we ever get there to this ultimate in a sinful world? And does my work even matter anymore? And you can see the desperation there and how easily you can, you can fall into uh, an ends justifies the means kind of ethic. This has to happen. And we're willing to throw out every other constitutional amendment, or we're willing to throw out every other kind of ethical reasoning to get to this point, because this is where we have to be. And we have to get here in this time and in this place. And if we don't, we're failures. I don't know how they lived with themselves. I don't know how they could, they could even face a world like that. 
where we have this certain amount of freedom where we can venture all things, as Luther said, where we can strive knowing that we have the ultimate where everything's going to be made right. And it doesn't mean... Everything doesn't, is going to be okay, yeah, as virtue in the wasteland would say. It doesn't... It, not everything depends on me, it turns out, you know, and we're back to the loving father saying, don't worry, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, you think you, you've seen bad stuff. Man, I've seen it at all, right? I know. But I also have uh, orchestrated all of this for your eternal benefit. And that does not make us lazy, or it shouldn't. That does not make us, well, then who cares? Do, you know, live and let live. But rather, in that freedom, we can fight for justice. We can fight for what is right, knowing that in the end, it's still going to be uh, made right by somebody who has a bigger perspective than us and certainly has more power um, than us. And I think uh, this is especially something that's a helpful reminder for the church in our own day because I think um, a number of Christians feel the church is threatened. Uh, I think the church is threatened um, on a number of fronts. And so this can quite understandably lead to a desire to, uh, um, A, you know, fight for religious liberty, which is a, a, a noble thing. Religious liberty is a thing I'm thankful we have in our country. Um, but be to kind of like prop up the walls to, to start to set a defense, um, which at the same time too, right? The mighty fortress is our God, that there's, there's something to that at, at times as well. But what, what can happen then is that we do confuse penultimate and ultimate in, 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 a, in a few ways in so doing as well. Um, first, when, we, when we're trying to, to take the right for, um, you know, we're going to fight for religious liberty, we really need to be careful in defining um, what is religious liberty? Why do we want it as Christians? Um, uh, how are we going to use it to serve our neighbor? Um, to not ha- to not deify it so that it can become our God or our goddess in and of itself. Uh, Jesus did say, "Turn the other cheek." Um, he did uh, warn that there would be times when Christians would be asked to to suffer for um, for Christ, and to make sure that too, when someone is supposedly suffering for religious liberty, that it's actually for. Religious liberty is always a, a good thing, too. Um, once again, though, that's not to demean uh, the gift that is religious liberty in our own country. I'm just using this as an example. Um, but then to be careful, too, who are we willing to ally with in such a fight for religious liberty? And uh, and, and sometimes people can be uh, willing to make some very strange bedfellows uh, in so doing. And I think we've seen in history a number of instances uh, with Nazism comes to mind where you have um, the possibility at first Bonhoeffer and Sasa working together and, well, you know, you have the Barman and the Bethel declarations and you, you could have had this very Lutheran statement against fascism, but Bart kind of wiggles his way in and you get what really was a diminishing of confessional differences to get a statement that in the end wasn't necessarily all that better by the, the confessing church. And I think we can see that in our own day too, that in a, in a fight for religious liberty, um, we actually forget what the heart and core of our message um, of our religion as Christians is, which is the gospel message, which is Christ crucified for sinners. And so we can end up alienating others. And this happens when we build the fortress and the fortress just becomes about us versus them so that we see seeing our neighbor as neighbor and only see neighbor as enemy. I think um, Jesus said something about how to treat our enemies as Christians. And uh, so I think that can play in. And it, it can also, uh, it, it can lead to a, a more, uh, what's the way to put it, legalistic, moral focused, um, 
we're going to defend we're going to justify and defend God rather than relishing our justification from God in Christ Jesus and what a lot of this belies is as as Mike said a, a lack of faith uh, that we have a Christ who now allows us, as, as he said, Luther pointed out, to venture all things because we do have the confidence of the gospel. There were many things at the ref- time of the Reformation that people appealed to Luther to just back off of um, this emphasis on justification by grace through faith because of because the church just otherwise wasn't going to be strong enough to survive this or to survive that. And as Luther reminds us, and I hope uh, we understand as Jesus and Paul remind us, the church doesn't survive at all apart from that message of the gospel of Christ. And what is the message of the gospel of Christ? It is ultimate. You now know your future. It is secure in Christ. And now you're willing, now you can go um, and serve in the political realm and, and seek to, to have religious liberty, not only for yourself, but for your neighbor, maybe even your neighbor of a different faith as well. Now you are able in some ways to build your fortresses, so to speak. And, and really, right, when we have a Lutheran elementary school, what are we trying to do? We are trying to catechize our children well before we send them out into the world. And that's a noble and, and that's a, a good thing. And that's not an us-them thing. That's a salt light thing, right? We want to send them out that they may remain in the faith and help others come to it too. So to, so to be careful in the church also, and this can even play into evangelism sometimes where we can start to think, unless we get the right program and we go and do the right thing, it's all over, it's all done. And I've even heard pastors articulate things in that way, which is, is kind of shocking sometimes. I mean, they're brothers and I'm sure they didn't realize or mean it that way maybe, but um, that we put a pressure on ourselves that God simply has not put on us. Uh, God would just have us go take that message and trust himself to, to do the work. And so we can take these very good things even and, and, and um, we, can, we can turn them into an idol. Uh, we can make them ultimate. And, and therefore, what do they become? They become sources of anxiety and worry. Not in a godly way like you were mentioning, Mike, where some, you're actually concerned about your neighbor, but a, you know, a pass-fail, a, uh, it, you know, this is our task, are we going to get it done? And it, which is in the end a, a return to the law and, 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 you know, the measuring rod of the law. But anything, with, I'm talking too much. Yeah, about. no, you work while it's day. Um, but if, if you think that everything depends on you, you're not getting up to meet that day. I mean, I, when, when I hear, you know, everything depends on you, whether it's evangelism or anything else, I go, you don't really believe that because otherwise you'd be in the fetal position in your bed. You would be paralyzed by fear to make a mistake. You would, you would be overwhelmed by the burden that you put on yourself. And so we don't even really believe that. We only, we only say that a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, I, you, it's not freedom when you are paralyzed by that by that sense of obligation that God did not put on you. And, and what a terrible father to put something on a child like that, you know, and, and it's out of his character. He who has done everything for us, even earned our own right righteousness for us that he would then put everything into our laps. No, rather he uses us to give us purpose um, and to lift us to, a, as, as Dr. Veith would say, to a startling degree uh, in vocation, but then also in the, uh, the work of the church evangelism. And when you're freed from that, lo and behold, that's when you actually are more productive and you um, enjoy life and uh, enjoy your tasks and they are much less burdens, um, but more uh, things that you get excited about and you can lose yourself into your into your work whatever it is maybe I switch gears just a little bit if well the, if I can just go ahead quick before I lose the thought because I lose them quickly now uh, and just to piggyback on what you're saying Mike I think uh, and, and I think this is part of what Dr. Veith has in mind 
right when we have when we don't feel motivated when we feel we don't have a good enough work to do until we find the next grand cause right that really undermines vocation and what truly good works are because in this is luther at monasticism in our last wing in it or that will be out, I think, before this episode, is on monasticism, but right, it becomes a, a venture for new and better work than the one God has given us. Um, and I lose sight of my family, I lose sight of my friends, I lose sight of the people who live in my neighborhood for this big idea. And this goes back to the Grand Inquisitor and uh, Ivan and Alyosha, and, and Ivan thinks he's this virtuous man because he's thinking in grand schemes. Well, um, grand schemes don't have faces. And so maybe just to go along with mm-hmm. that too, that it really is a, a diminish. Some people might say, well, no, I'm, I'm about doing the good works God has called us to do. Well, those works have faces. Yeah. And you can, you, you end up imprisoning yourself by, I mean, how many people in history have been consumed by this one cause that their family falls apart and uh, everything else in their life is a disaster. Um, they become immoral in a lot of different ways because uh, I think maybe even a lot of it, they're just, they're just tired. They, they don't have the, the, the will anymore because they've expended it on this where grand cause that they don't have the will to, um, fight their own temptations kind of thing, you know, um, whether it be or drugs their sins or, are excusable because yeah. right. They need, they're so caught up in all these big things that they, right. This is, they just need this, this break, this release, whatever the case may yeah, be. Yeah. That's another interesting, uh, probably not a whole episode, but think about the great, uh, reformers of the world that many of them, uh, were not faithful to their wives or the husbands that many of them, um, had their own demons. And we tend to, if we're against their, uh, unfairly try to tear them down because of this one sin. And that's unfair at the same time to realize maybe they were all consumed by maybe a righteous cause. Um, and there, you know, there's some dangers when you get to that, to that point, not to say that, um, you shouldn't be all in on some of these things, but, uh, it, it, it can be a dangerous thing. A righteous cause doesn't necessarily make a righteous man. Yeah. Uh, probably the opposite <laughs> very often. Um, but just to think about this and, and I'm going to criticize the Christian church in America and then, uh, broaden it to all religions. I is, thought you said, we're going to say that you're going to criticize me. So I'm relieved. No, absolutely. No, you are a part of the Christian church in America though. So not um, so much in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you worship at the idol of softball and baseball. Anyway, uh, tournaments on the weekends. Yeah. Um, in Minnesota in winter, there was, uh, not in my parish, but, uh, you had the hockey, hockey families. Yeah, like, I'll and that's see, even more intense. Yeah, I'll see you, I'll see you in the uh, springtime. Anyway, um, there are even churches who will give money to the Israeli army or, or somehow funnel money to that for the distinct purpose of trying to get the certain land in Palestine, however now they define the boundaries. So Jesus will come back. And then you <laughs> fight. For the purpose then of, like, as if Jesus is waiting for, and it's a misunderstanding of some passages, especially in Romans, but um, you do this or we do this, and then this will bring about God's action. And uh, it's a backwards kind of thing. Like, God is sitting up there waiting, you know, looking at his wristwatch once in a while. I'd be, I wish that, that the, um, you know, we could get Jerusalem under Jewish Christian control and then I'll come back and, and bring you it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a backwards way of thinking about it. And it changes geopolitics in a very, very distinct way. And, uh, that, that can be dangerous, but and this people will say, well, 
how can anybody think Christianity is dangerous? Well, yeah. there's Christian churches literally trying <laughs> right. to bring about the right. apocalypse. Yep. And, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. And this is true of every religion. And, and sometimes people who are maybe critical of religion say religion's the problem. Um, and if we eat, knowing that they can't get rid of a religion will then focus on, well, it's the fundamentalist in each religion. Those are the ones that are blowing people up. Those are the ones that who are bigots and stuff like that. Now, the word fundamentalism is a difficult word because it can be a, a proper noun specifically to a movement in evangelicalism, uh, early 20th century. We don't need to go into that right now. Fundamentals are, are good, right? As any basketball coach would tell you. And you have fundamentals to all of your uh, ways of thinking, everything in your life, whether it's your business or your sports or your whatever. And um, I think what they mean is ideologues who are, who are locked into this one thing and then um, are all consumed by that. But that's not even really the problem because you can be all consumed at being non-religious, right? And they wouldn't criticize that. They're all consumed on criticizing religion in s certain respects. Some, some people are. All consumed in a work of art. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. And maybe the even narrow it down even more, I think, is, is where you really actually find a nugget of truth is that there are in each religion, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, it does not matter. Non-religious too. That there is going to be a segment that believes in this, that if we do this action, then we will bring upon or we will hasten the end of the world. And that's to their benefit by either having a utopia here on earth or a heaven or both or however, wherever their, their, their theology lies. And this probably is at least modern way of thinking or, or in the modern world, contemporary world, I should say is probably more accurately the source of violence and terrorism. Um, you know, every single religion has that. It's not unique to Christianity or Islam or Judaism, but even in the so-called pacifist Eastern religions, they have their elements too. Um, and so it just, it's, it's a very, and, and the person I should give a hat tip to on this is Uwe Simonetto, who, who pointed this out to me. I had the privilege of being under him for a few days um, at the uh, International Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights, um, pointed this out. And that was seemed so obvious to me, um, and yet it was so pro profound to me. And like, why didn't I ever think about that? Why didn't everybody uh, teach me that before? Um, but it's a, a misunderstanding of the end times has some serious ramifications uh, in our entire world. And I... I think, um, you know, what we mean by end times, too, different groups may have different uh, definitions for that. So when we think end times in Christianity, right, we have a very explicit um, uh, concept in mind, Christ's return. But these can be utopian goals as well. Um, it can My, be pacifist, too. I mean, right. it's not always, yeah. It can be the man with the storehouses, right? What was his end times? His soul could be at peace because his storehouses were, were full. 
Um, it can be me thinking, you know, I'll be happy when I graduate college. I'll be happy when I graduate seminary. I'll be happy when I graduate, you know, um, with an MA. I'll be happy when I graduate with a PhD. I'll be happy when I'm married. I'll be happy when I have one kid, two kid, three kid, four kid, five kid. I'll be happy when I have a pickup truck. I'll be happy when I have a new pickup truck. I'll be happy when I have a podcast. I'll be happy when Mike has a brown shirt. You know, and, and all of these things um, that are things that make me extremely happy, but but I can... I can um, make them less than what they ought be by trying to make them more as if they were where I'm going to find my ultimate like now I can now I can just I'm done that's the one thing I wanted it can be the kid who says I'll never ask for anything again if and so we can easily become eschatological in a lot of ways in our thinking and so maybe uh um one of the things hopefully maybe this episode can do if you're listening is to lead each of us and I know I've been doing this just as I've been um recording this with Mike and especially listening to Mike, is to ask ourselves uh, where have we maybe become eschatological in the wrong places? Um, where have we maybe robbed ourselves of God's good gifts and of, of joy and of opportunities to serve um, through uh, becoming last thingy about things that aren't last things, about, as I've said, mixing up the ultimate and the penultimate, right? This is a penultimate world. It's second to last. It's not last. And so... Uh, Mike, unless you have something else, I think we've, we've hit on a number of things. Anything you want before I take uh, this out? Yeah, I'll let you finish it after maybe one thought. I think it was John Stuart Mill who said, if you're ever thinking about happiness, that's a recipe for not being happy, <laughs> right? And and what you said about, if I just have this, I just have this. For me, it's, it's that way very much. Like, if I can just get through this summer, if I can just get through this school year, if I can just get through this season in the church or whatever, then everything's going to be great. That's not how the world works. That's not how love works, right? And God loves you enough to to not say, okay, now you're on vacation. And and I wonder too if we could have Sheen on here. I got to ask her this question. There's many theories on the fall of Professor Rome. Professor Finnegan. Yeah. Yes, one of them is um, everybody started looking at retirement. Yeah. You know, and uh, I'm wondering. Uh, we're constantly thinking about our retirement in America. We work for our retirement. We lose. I hate to say live in the day, but there's some truth to that. You, you lose the joy of work. And so you're miserable five days a week. So you can cram in two days of living and then you, you know, you, you're miserable 40, 50 years of your life so that you can, when you're old and decrepit, start to enjoy life. It just seems like a bad recipe. Mm. And, um, and there is again, like you said, a mixture of the penultimate and the ultimate. Like I'm trying to get to this ultimate. Well, that's not a very good ultimate right now. And you're never going to be satisfied because you're created in the image of God for something such so much better. And his ultimate heaven really is where you're going to have the finally the sigh and say, ah, you know what? I can just live life. And that's, you know, I think uh, we mentioned virtue in the wasteland with everything is going to be okay, which is just a fantastic slogan because it gets at... Um, you know, from the Christian view, the, the ultimate is already established and it's wonderful in Christ. But I think uh, we can also say as Christians, you know, next time you're in the, the bathroom, uh, run the faucet a little bit, splash some water on your face, think of your baptism. And I think we can also say everything is okay. And that doesn't mean there's not stuff to be concerned about. We should be involved as citizens because our neighbor is in this world and we want to love and serve our neighbor. But at the same time, even when everything seems to be going wrong, when there's plenty that we could be anxious or worry about, um, we are in a penultimate world where we're clothed with Christ's righteousness. We have the, 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 the medicine of immortality. We have heavenly bread. We have Christ's body and blood in the supper. 
And so uh, everything at the same time, while there are things we want to work on and, and, and help improve for our neighbor, everything is okay. And uh, I think we can let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down, get with my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a janker. I set him up another round. I set him up.